As um, you find your seats, go ahead and find a copy of God's Word. We're going to track down the book of Mark, looking at chapter 15 this morning. Uh, as you find that, I will say, um, you know, we, we hope that the, the sermon and the songs always at least coordinate because they're based on the text we're looking at that day or they're just the gospel as a whole. But um, as I was sitting there listening, I realized that the, the songs just preach the text for me. So now I just hope I don't mess it up. Um, but Mark 15, uh, so I might just read it and say refer back to music and then we'll get David back up here. But um, chapter 15, pick it up in verse 16 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the chairs uh, around you. Grab one of those. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, as always, take one of those as our gift to you. So focus on verse 16 through 39 uh, this morning. We are, Lord willing, one week away from uh, completing our journey through the book of Mark. And I don't say that with excitement in terms of ready to be done. Just um, we're, Lord willing, going to make it uh, to uh, the end of it. And and though it wasn't a part of the original plan last fall, it has worked out where we will complete Mark's gospel on uh, Easter, uh, which, as you probably know, Easter's about the resurrection. Mark's gospel ends on the resurrection, so that obviously works out uh, well. Um, since, by and large, there are members in here today, and there's likely to be guests uh, next week, uh, several guests next week, I want to go ahead and say this, and we'll just... My plan is to send out something via email or have it printed for you guys. But if you'll notice, most of your Bibles, if you have a, depending on which English translation you have, it has verses 9 through 19 in chapter 16 in like double brackets. Um, And you probably got some notes in your Bible. If you got a good study Bible, you can go read about that. Um, That, that. We're not going to preach that section of Mark's gospel, and there's good reason for that. Um, it doesn't point to any error in God's word. It's not a question of uh, inerrancy or anything like that. It's a question of transmission of God's word in the earliest manuscripts, not having that section. But if you rightly interpret it, it doesn't contradict anything else in God's word. Uh, but we don't see it fitting to cover that. So we'll send out something on that. Just be aware of that. I didn't want to say next week in front of some guests or somebody that might not know the church or the Bible real well that, hey, we're not going to cover that section and Mark ends here. So uh, next week we'll uh, we'll pick up in verse 40 of chapter 15 and go through verse 8 of chapter 16. So be on the lookout for some. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer any questions on that last section of, of, of Mark that we're not going to cover. Okay, um, even though today is uh, Sunday, the typical day throughout uh, history the church has gathered, the events of our text for today are what is known as Good Friday. You heard a Good Friday service mentioned earlier. I um, uh, hope you'll be able to participate in that. Uh, but in terms of the events and truths of this uh, text, we're going to get two opportunities to look at the events and the truths of this text. A very brief opportunity on on Friday and a little more extended opportunity now. But given the weight of these truths, I think it's okay to have a little bit more time to meditate uh, on these. Uh, but so uh, this is Palm Sunday, but we're focused on Good uh, Friday. Um, all right. So these events really make Christianity unique in so many ways because we've come to the cross. Okay, The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the cross of Christ is the central event in Christianity. 
Uh, for those with a Christian worldview, this would be, in a sense, the center of history, even though from a time perspective it may not be, this would be the center of history. This event and the implications of it literally change everything, even if you don't know that they change everything. And it's putting it lightly to call it unique. No one could really conceive of the central figure of a religion being so violently and shamefully killed. Because martyrs can be inspiring, but they don't typically start sustained worldwide religions that last for so long. But here we are at the cross, the most important moment for the Christian faith. And it it's one of those things, we mention the cross and it just kind of flies by, it's on the wall behind me. I bet a few of you might have some cross jewelry on today. Um, it, it just doesn't really have the impact on us. We, we have it in the artwork on our walls. We have it in the jewelry around our necks. And so the significance escapes us a bit. But it's impossible to overstate, overemphasize, or ever completely exhaust the depth of the significance of the cross. And how shocking it would have been to the original audience. This is, uh, you know, I made the comments about the songs uh, preaching this text. This really is one of those texts. You try to do your best to just get out of the way. Just communicate the text and let the Lord do the work. Because this is straightforward, foundational Christianity 101. This is Jesus dying for the salvation of sinners. This is Jesus satisfying God's righteous anger Against his rebellious creation. This is Jesus reconciling the nations to God. This gruesome first century instrument of torture was the means through which God demonstrated the immensity of his grace toward those who had rejected him. The cross is the pinnacle of both God's love and God's wrath. You want to know God's wrath. You want to know his judgment. You look at the cross. You want to know his love. You want to know his grace and his mercy, you look at the cross. So much to learn from this passage, from the parallel text that we have in the other gospel accounts. And I've got a simple outline today based on some themes that I want to draw out that hopefully will help us to see what God wants to see in this text. Um, But in the background, I want to put this in your minds, but in the background, through this text, we we are taught at least three things, or we, we should be able to learn in at least three areas. We should be able to learn about ourselves from this text. More importantly, more importantly, we can learn about Jesus from this text. And tied to that, we learn about what Jesus did or what he accomplished. Okay, So three areas in which we should learn and grow from this text about ourselves, about Jesus, and about what he has Accomplished, And it's key that you keep all of those together. You have to learn about all three, because if you know who you truly are, but you don't know Jesus and what he's accomplished, that's pretty depressing. But if you know Jesus and what he's accomplished, but you don't know who you truly are, then it really doesn't matter. Like, okay, Jesus, that's great. I'm glad he did that. Good guy. But I don't really see the need for it. So you got to kind of hold all of these in balance and see how they uh, connect. It's key to grasp. All three of those areas, who we are, who Jesus is, and what he has done. Central, foundational, fundamental Christianity. With that in mind, let's read the text, see how the Lord wants to instruct us here. Mark chapter 15, picking up in verse 16, reading through 39. So Jesus has been arrested, falsely accused. 
gone through some sham trials, wrongly convinced, uh, convicted, wrongly sentenced. And we pick up with that sentencing from his trial, from the sham trial, we, we pick up with that sentencing being carried out. So this is the word of God. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. They decided what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him. To one another saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ. The king of Israel come down. Now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him. Also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi. Eloi. Lima sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink it, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. All right. Um, I mentioned I'm I'm going to use a a few themes to help us walk through this. I'm going to draw out four themes that will hopefully help us better grasp what's going on here. And I'll give them to you as we go. But before we get to that first theme, I want to want to point out a barrier that exists between us and the cross or between us and understanding the cross, both understanding ourselves, who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. One of the most important questions that we can ask in all of life is what's happening or what happened at the cross. It's paramount that we humbly ask and answer that question in all of its forms. But unfortunately, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to get to the right answer of those of those questions. And I think there's a threefold reason for that. For one, we have a diminishing view culturally of our own sinfulness. 
And this is coupled with a diminishing sense of God's holiness. And both of these are fueled, I think, in large part by an ever increasing sense of our self-worth. There's a label, an idea that you'll need to get familiar with. Okay, If you're going to live and operate as a Christian in our culture in the days and years ahead, you need to get familiar with this label and you need to seek to learn about it and unpack it as well as I do. It's called expressive individualism, expressive individualism, something that's easier to describe than it is to define. Some have labeled it as one of the most dominant religions in our day, even though it doesn't pretend or act like a religion, like we would normally see one. One author has uh, helpfully assigned some tenets to it to maybe give us some handlebars to try to figure out what, what is it exactly. He put forward uh, seven tenets. One, the best way to find yourself is to look inward. Two, the highest goal in life is happiness. Three, all moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Four, forms of external authority are to be rejected. Fifth, the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom improves or grows. And six, finally, everyone's quest for self-expression must be celebrated. In the words of that modern musical classic, Let It Go, it's time to see what I can do. To test the limits and break through. No rights, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. The not so subtle gospel of Disney, right? No hate mail, okay? No hate mail for calling out Disney from you fanatics, okay? Not picking on Disney, just pointing out the obvious, okay? Just calling it like I see it. Here's my point. We marinate daily in a culture that tells us we are the highest authority. That you are the highest authority. That we don't look out for what's best, we look in. Okay? We marinate in this daily. Our kids are growing up in this, just saturated in it. We're a little, we're a little more callous, you know, as you get older. You don't quite soak all of that in as quickly and as freely, but just think about the next generation. We're not, we don't look out, we look in. Our desires, our goals, our pursuits, Our everything is what's most important. Authority is bad and autonomy is good. That's the narrative. We are more directed by this than we realize. And this hinders us as we approach the cross. It shields us from humbly seeing our own sin. It guards us from rightly seeing God's holiness and hinders us from properly grasping the cross. It's sort of like unknowingly wearing sunglasses indoors and not understanding why you can't see clearly. Took Jackson to a restaurant last night. Young girl wore sunglasses the entire time, and I I never have figured that one out. But it's like unknowingly wearing them and then wondering, why can't I read the menu? I don't get it. And I'm not saying just because I tell you you're wearing sunglasses that all of a sudden you're going to be able to take them off and freely see again. But hopefully you can at least recognize there are some things standing in the way of me and rightly understanding the cross. And then there's some barriers standing in the way of the culture and people in the world, people outside of the church understanding the cross. There are barriers that are being created in our kids sitting in this room right now to their right understanding of the cross. 
Nobody ever thought that frozen would put a barrier between our kids and the cross. So, let's take that. Pray the Lord helps us to see through that in some fashion. Be able to see who we are, who he is, and what Christ has done. All right, hopefully you aren't too confused or distracted by now or got Google up trying to figure out what expressive individualism is, but good topic to study. Let's go to the first theme. First, let's look at indescribable humiliation. Indescribable humiliation. When it comes to the cross, I think many of our minds go to uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ more than it goes to the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew, or Luke, or John, for that matter. Meaning our focus goes more to the physical. We, we start to picture and think about the physical aspects. What Jesus endured physically. The beatings, the wooden cross, the nails to the hands and the feet. The physical torture that he endured. And it's not as if that is not important. Okay, That's in Mark. That's in other Gospel accounts. Some of it is mentioned. But if you listen to the text, if you look at the text, you will notice the absence of certain things and the presence of other things. You will notice the lack of detail when it comes to crucifixion, but you will notice the amount of detail about other things. So although there's physical abuse leading up to the actual crucifixion, when it comes to the crucifixion itself, all you get is verse 21, or starting in verse 21, you don't get a bunch of detail after that about the crucifixion. Actually, you only get just four words. Verse 24, and they crucified him. That's it. That's all you get about the actual crucifixion. And they crucified him. No gory details, no sensationalism, just they crucified him. So not much on the physical side of things, but we got a lot on something else. We got a lot of other detail in the text. It may be hard to sum all of that other detail up in one word, but I would put it like this, that the emphasis of the text falls on the shame more than it does the pain. It falls more on the shame that Jesus experienced than the pain that he experienced. It's more on the humiliation of Jesus than the physical crucifixion of Jesus. And there are likely a couple of reasons behind that. First, Mark didn't need to describe crucifixion to his original audience. Crucifixion was a very public form of execution in that day. We, 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 we sort of see that in the details here, that it was public. Rome used crucifixion not only as a form of punishment, but as a deterrent. They wanted it to be seen. I don't know about you, but I live really close to here, but I passed a school, some houses, a gas station, Martins on my way here. Just coming to and from, you pass stuff like that. Coming to and from in the first century, you're going to pass people hanging on crosses. It's going to be public. You, You see that happen in this text. So that would be one reason he may not bring it up. And people didn't think it proper to talk about crucifixion. You just don't. You don't sit around and talk about crucifixion. I mean, how often do we sit around and talk in detail about a lynching or an electric chair or a firing squad? We just, I mean, those things sort of come up in horror. 
So he didn't just sit around and talk about crucifixion. But the second reason for a lack of detail in the physical probably has to do more with Mark's focus on the theological. He wants you to understand the dynamics at play behind the cross and the implications of the cross. And so he chooses to give great attention to the, the shame and the mocking and the humiliation of Jesus in his crucifixion. Which prompts the question, why? Why, why the detail there? Why, why would you go into such detail in that? Why, why point out the purple cloak and the crown of thorns and what the soldiers said and did and what robbers said and the response of those passing by and the response of the religious leaders? Well, this text, you can look at it as a mirror of sorts. The Bible is a mirror in general that we hold it up to see who we are. Well, this text in particular is a mirror You see, everyone gets a turn at Jesus in this text. Everyone. The general public, the religious people, okay, the pagans, the Gentiles, the outlaws. No one is excluded. We all in some form, that's what Mark's trying to tell us, we all in some form participate in this. We are all implicated in this. The natural human condition is not, oh, God is great. I love that guy. The natural human condition is to or inclination is to mock God, to reject God. We're not just broken people. We are rebels who naturally in our natural state spurn and reject God. And Mark is showing that very clearly here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not trying to draw us in so that we would condemn the actors in the text. He's trying to draw us in to show us we are actors in the text. It's been pointed out the past couple of weeks. There's a theme of abandonment as Jesus goes towards the cross. Everyone has abandoned Jesus. Jesus has betrayed him. The rest of the disciples have fled from him. You've got the event of the guy running away naked, which just goes to show like everybody's leaving. And for whatever reason, they're leaving. And then Peter abandons him, denies him. The religious leaders have condemned him. The Gentiles have sentenced him. The crowds have rejected him. Jesus stands completely and utterly abandoned by everyone. Jews, Gentiles, religious, non-religious. There's not a category that's not represented. Spurgeon said this text should let us abhor the sin which brought such agony upon our beloved Lord. He's getting at the point. He's saying, you're not brought to this text to condemn the ones that did it. You're brought to this text to abhor your own sin. Martin Luther said, there's two ways you can read this text. You can read it and shake your head at the people who mocked and humiliated Jesus. You can look at them and condemn them. Or you can read it and contemplate that this passage reveals your heart. It shows us naturally that we are enemies who will abandon God. We need to hear our mocking voice among the crowd. Just follow along quickly. Just listen how the humiliation just builds and builds here. So you've got a battalion, soldiers that get things started. Okay, that would make up 600. It's likely not 600 all around Jesus. We can just imagine a large crowd of soldiers mocking Jesus. And don't forget, Jesus has already been scourged. He's a bloody beaten mess by the time this even starts. Okay. He, 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 he's not physically retaliating at this point. He's a bloody beaten mess. They robe him in purple, 
make a crown of thorns for his head, and they begin to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They're, they're playing dress up with him, just mocking him. Purple, a sign of royalty, obviously a crown, sign of a king. They just prop him up and mock him with the charge against him. Oh, you think, look at this king. You just imagine. I mean, they're just spitting on him, just throwing insults at him. What kind of king are you? And this reed that's mentioned here in the other gospel accounts, you know, they kind of put it like a fake scepter in his head. Now they're taking him beating it, or in his hands. Now they're beating him in the head with it. And they just continue to mock and they kneel and pay fake homage to him. And they, again, just to add insult to injury, we're just going to spit as we go by. Once they've satisfied their fun, they lead him out to be crucified. The humiliation only grows. Jesus can't carry his own cross. Somebody being crucified would have been expected to carry the horizontal cross beam. Okay, up to the place where they were being crucified. But he's in such bad shape he needs help. And we are introduced here to Simon of Cyrene, who just happens to be coming into town. Okay. Now, real quick, it's worth mentioning that the naming of Simon of Cyrene as the, as, as, and, and his sons, Alexander and Rufus. This is an odd detail to just be stuck in there, right? That's a little stamp of authenticity from Mark. He's writing to an audience that would have said, we know Rufus and Alexander. We know, we, we know them. His dad, their dad, that was him who carried the cross. He's putting forth proof of eyewitness. People reading this originally would have known, like, we can go talk to Rufus. And there may be here, more here, just a picture of discipleship. He said we got to pick up our cross and follow him. But I think in the overall context, the emphasis is just on humiliation. He can't even carry his own cross beam. You keep going by verse 22. Jesus is now hanging on the cross. The cross bar is hoisted into place. He's nailed to it. He refused this mixture of wine and myrrh. That would have been a narcotic used at times to dull the pain. It could be a a mode of sympathy, but also prolonging what's happening. Jesus, no, I'm going to be in all my senses. I've got to fully take this in. No drugs for me. We see, according to verse 24, he's basically naked now. King of heaven, strung out naked while they more or less roll dice below him for his clothes. Verse 27, he's crucified between two robbers, two men deserving of death. According to verse 32, even they revile him. We know from other gospel accounts, one of them does repent. They believe in Jesus but here we see their reviling of Jesus, the guilty and deserving, mocking the innocent and undeserving. Then verse 29, we just see the common people passing by, mocking, shaking their heads in disgust at him. You, you're going to destroy the temple, huh? Come on, let's see it happen. And the language here is vivid. In our day, they are cussing at him, cursing him. This is language like, if I were to give you modern day examples, you would be frightened for your kids right now. Foul language coming out of their mouth, just passing by. Chief priests joining the chorus. You saved all those people, can't save yourself. You notice they acknowledge what good he's done. 
Okay, as they mock him, you saved other people, but you can't save yourself. Such irony in those statements, if you think about it, if he comes down, he can't save. Okay, If he doesn't stay on the cross, there's no salvation. And they're saying, come down and we'll believe in you. But if he comes down, there is no, there's no point in believing in him. One author said about that, so Jesus was completely capable of saving himself. But then he couldn't have saved us. So he willingly chose to endure the mocking and the spitting. He willingly chose to suffer and die so that we could be saved. He chose death so that we could live. There's no language that I can come up with, no amount of time in a sermon, no amount of points that I could use to exaggerate or exhaust the, the depravity of man and the humiliation of Christ that's on display here. One commentator said, the list of sins here is long. All we need to do is add ours. As the hymn goes, it was our sin that held him there, but it's our sin that led him there as well. Think about it. It's hard to picture the most honest, the most compassionate, the most loving, the most gracious, the most patient man that ever walked this earth enduring this level of scorn. And it's even harder to picture our participation in it. We need to move to the next theme, but I just want to point this out because this was so convicting to me this week. I want to note the response or lack thereof from Jesus. There's no self-defense from Jesus. You notice that? No effort to get the final word in. No attempt to preserve any measure of dignity or pride. Jesus surrenders in total vulnerability to everything that is happening to him. I don't know about you, but that astounds me and convicts me beyond words. I want justice even at the smallest injustices. I mean, I struggle not to get upset at a bad call in one of my kids' games. Like, I really struggle with that. I am silently, like, calling down judgment on refs. It's, I am, really am. And just, just sin on full display. I mean, I, you find myself, if a kid plays dirty against my kid, like, there's just, just imprecatory psalms coming down. And here you got Jesus. Completely innocent. Enduring the full gamut of unjust cruelty and he opened not his mouth. Which if you know your Old Testament, that that was prophesied that he would do so. You know, people might want to try to argue that like Jesus was just some uh, pretend uh, Messiah. So basically he had the Old Testament. So if I go and do things like the Old Testament said, then I would be seen as the Messiah who could do this? Like, who could endure this and not open their mouth and not not push back and not argue? Who could f- fully fulfill Isaiah and not fold? This is no pretend Messiah. So that's the first three theme: indescribable humiliation. Next, let's look at indispensable substitution. Indispensable substitution. This is 
This is good news if you see yourself as an actor in the, in the story. It's good news right here. This is also somewhat the deep end of the theological pool. But there are some waters here that we can all wade into. So verses 33 and 34 are probably the heart of the passage. And they point to one of the central tenets of biblical Christianity. So behind the darkness over the land and the cry we hear from Jesus is a central truth of the Christian faith. And it's known as substitutionary atonement. God here is pouring out his wrath towards sinners on Jesus on the cross. Those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as Lord, that God raised him from the dead, will receive life instead of death. And they get that because Jesus took the curse that we deserve. Because Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, as the Bible would put it. That's ultimately what is happening here. Jesus is bearing the full weight of God's wrath Do your sin and my sin. He's hanging in the place we deserve. He's dying so that enemies can become children, so that adversaries can become friends. He's accepting death so that we can receive life. That's basic Christianity. Christ in our place. That's the gospel. That we all, without exception, have rebelled against God. God is holy. We are not. That's a problem. Okay, God is holy. We are not. That is a problem, a problem you can't good deed or good behavior your way out of. But the good news is God not only sets the standard, he provides the solution. He comes himself. He takes on flesh. He lives perfectly, dies sacrificially. And as we will see next week in detail, rises victoriously. So that all who receive this, who see their sin And see his work and trust him will be saved. He did all of that so that all, anyone who sees their sin, sees his work and trust him will be saved. From rebellious scoffers to beloved sons or daughters. That's fundamental, foundational Christianity. That's at the heart of this Text. So we see, according to verse 33, we're at the sixth hour. Okay, That's noon in the way they would account for time. From then to the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., there's darkness over the land. So three hours of darkness over the land. And this is supernatural darkness. It's kind of fun to read all the different explanations about how this might have happened. And some of them are laughable. But this is, I mean, the only way to understand this is it's supernatural. Okay, and that signifies a number of things. Darkness can signify mourning. It could signify the death of someone important, someone great. And it could signify God's judgment. And all of those things are fitting, but it's the last one that seems to fit the best. Because Amos, Amos declares this. Amos 8, 9, and 10, or 8, verses 9 and 10, in the context of talking about God's judgment, says this. In that day, how did a pretend Messiah make this happen? In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. He goes on to say, I will will turn your religious feast into mourning and all your singing into weeping. What happened at the cross and what's signaled by the darkness is divine judgment. 
This is Jesus bearing the full weight of judgment. Which gives meaning to what he says, what he cries out in verse 34. One of the deeper and more mysterious texts in Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Commonly known as the cry of dereliction. We see from this text that some think he's calling Elijah. Okay, Elijah's coming back. And those words there that he uses at the beginning that translate to my God, my God, people probably could have heard. Oh, is, he, is he calling Elijah? I can't really tell what he's saying. They even try to give him a drink. Let's see if he comes back. Let's see if Elijah comes. But we know as the readers, that's not what he's calling for. And there's certain mystery here to what's happening. This cry comes in the context of God pouring out wrath on Jesus. So think about that. If Jesus is God in the flesh and we have a Trinitarian understanding of the nature of God, meaning one God in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, then how are we to understand God, the father pouring out his just wrath on God, the son and seemingly abandoning him? Is that even possible? If so, how does that work? Well, I'm not going to assume I can step in and concisely and easily explain the mechanics behind that. A lot of ink spilled on how to explain that. But I do think it's helpful to understand what Jesus is quoting here in its context. Jesus is quoting part of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 has been at play in Mark's narrative, okay? So, but it starts like this. Psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? It's a Psalm of King David. And what's helpful here is to understand the entirety of Psalm 22, but also how Jews in this day would have quoted scripture often. They would often quote a portion of a text and imply the entire meaning of the text. In other words, the whole text. So you could say part of Psalm 22 and you were bringing all of Psalm 22 to bear. Could be a prophecy. You quote one line, but you're bringing all of that prophecy to bear. That being the case, when we look at Psalm 22, we find that the righteous man who suffers unjustly is ultimately vindicated. And his experience of abandonment to death takes place in the context of the covenantal faithfulness of God. There's an aspect of forsakenness, but God is still faithful. Basically, Jesus is using scripture to lament the judgment And forsakenness he is experiencing as a result of taking on the sin of the world. But he's using scripture in its full context. And sees final vindication and victory. God's favor may be turned away and his judgment coming to bear. But God will ultimately vindicate. It's so hard to describe what. Jesus is experiencing in this moment or to fully comprehend what he's experiencing. No one. Think about it. No one. No one has ever known the love of the father like the son. No one has known it to the extent that Jesus knew it and felt it. No person has ever known the love of the father 
like Jesus did. Which is why no person has ever felt such pain under the hiddenness of God like the son did. One writer summed it up this way. He said the sufferings of his soul, as the old divines used to say, were the soul of his suffering. And into that soul we can see but dimly. Public though the cry was, it expressed the intensely private anguish of a tension between the sin-bearing Son and His heavenly Father. The whirlwind of sin at its most dreadful. God forsaken by God. We will not, this side of heaven, be able to fully resolve the mystery at play here. But we can grasp the point. Our salvation is only possible because Jesus endured the wrath of God. We may need to tread lightly on how we explain how that plays out, but we need not tremble lightly at the prospect of what it took to save us. What it took to deal with our sin, what it took so that we might find favor, what it took that we might be rescued from hell and dressed for heaven. It took the full wrath of God, do sinners, absorbed by the completely perfect and exhaustively innocent God-man, Jesus. There is at the heart of this text and the center of Christianity, indispensable substitution. You remove this, you remove Christianity. It falls apart. If you do not see, listen very closely, if you do not see Christ in your place, you have no place. If we don't see Christ in our place, we have no place. It's dark and Jesus is crying out because the penalty of sin is being paid in full. Our debt is being settled in this moment that we're reading about. And this may be the darkest day in all of history, but it opens the door for the brightest future we could ever imagine. It's a dark day. As some old preachers would say, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Which leads to our next theme. Flowing from this indispensable substitution, we get incomprehensible access. Incomprehensible access. Elijah doesn't show, as people expect. Jesus utters a loud cry, breathes his last, the light of the world by darkness slain. But it's immediately obvious that this is no ordinary death. Verse 38 gives a resounding signal that something extraordinary has happened. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And if you don't know anything about temples, or curtains or veils, then this may just seem like needless destruction to you. Why are we tearing up curtains? But the significance for the Jew would have been incomprehensible. So it would have been multiple veils or curtains in the temple. But Hebrews 9 and 10, if you go read that text, we walk through that in a sermon series. So you can go to the website, track down those sermons, learn a little bit more about this. They point clearly to this being the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Where God, where God was said to dwell among his people in the holy of holies. That veil was a physical, visible barrier indicating that access to God was Strictly prohibited. That's a holy place. You are not. Don't go in there. Okay. If you breach that curtain in the wrong way at the wrong time, if the wrong person went in there, it wasn't going to go well. That 
curtain helped to mitigate access between a sinful people and a holy God. In fact, this curtain was only to be breached on a particular day by particular people in a particular way. It was said that the priests would wear bells and have a rope tied around their legs so that if they went in and they did something wrong and they were struck dead and the bell stopped, then you could pull their body out. A Jew would have known the significance of the curtain. You didn't, you didn't go behind that curtain. You didn't have access to that room. And suddenly, upon the death of Jesus, it's ripped. It's wide open. And that means a number of different things. I think this pastor that I really appreciate, he, he noted a few important aspects of this. His name's Sam Storms. First, he says, it points to the fact that we now have a complete perfect, altogether sufficient and final sacrifice for sins. That is, no more sacrifices are needed. Which connects to the aspect, number second aspect, number two, it points to the fulfillment or end of the Mosaic Covenant, the old way. And third, it points to the fact that God in all His glory is now freely and fully accessible to us through Christ. Storm says this, he says, for centuries before the coming of Christ, God had confined the revelation of his glory and the majesty to the holy of holies. Now he burst forth to dwell no longer behind a veil in a house built with wood and stone and precious jewels, but to dwell in the hearts of his people. If you remember Hebrews, you get to chapter 10, it doesn't just say, okay, you have access. It says you have confident access. You have confidence to enter the holy of holies by the new and living way. Okay, that came through the flesh, that through through Jesus. Never thought about how I'd say never thought about it. Just don't think enough about how 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 we take this for granted, probably daily, that we have access to God. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're leaning on this right here. Access to God. Access it's only possible because of what Jesus endured here. We gather for worship. We have access only because of what Jesus suffered right here. I wonder if every time we prayed, worshipped, if we contemplated this text and the first two truths that we just looked at. I know that would be hard to do every time we prayed or worshipped. But if, if we could just bring those truths to bear, how would that heighten our prayer lives in our approach to worship. If we were reminded each time of what Jesus endured in our place to make this access possible. All right, last thing. Last thing. And this flows as well from the indispensable substitution and in part demonstrates this newfound access. Finally, we see inconceivable confession. Inconceivable confession. At this point of the text, it seems like we have reached the destination that Mark, by the Holy Spirit, is trying to get us to. Last week, we saw the so-called messianic secret sort of vanish. Jesus steps up. He's on trial. Are you the Messiah? And he finally, yes, I am. I am he. Now, post-death, we get this inconceivable confession. Inconceivable because of who makes it and what they confess. According to verse 39, we have a centurion. A Roman Gentile confessed this. Truly, this man was the Son of God. So many things about this confession 
It's not from a disciple. It's not from a religious leader. It's not from an average Jew. It's not from one of Jesus' family members. All the ones that you think it would be coming from and all the ones that throughout history would have been looking for the Messiah seem to miss it. The first confession recorded is from a Roman soldier, one of the very ones carrying out the crucifixion of Jesus. An enemy of God and of God's people. And it doesn't come on the heels of a miracle. Everybody wants a miracle. If I see a miracle, I believe in Jesus. It doesn't come on the heel of a, on the heels of like a teaching moment. What does it come on the heels of? The cross. His death. It's his passion that sparks faith. Text tells us that when the centurion saw how he breathed his last, he rightly confessed who Jesus is. And it's hard to explain. Mark doesn't give us a lot of details. It's hard to explain outside of God's just miraculous grace why exactly he responded this way. Not a lot of details. What was it about this death? There's no telling how many deaths, how many crucifixions this guy has administered and seen and observed. And there was something about this one that got him. What in particular did he see? We know from other gospel accounts there were more supernatural things happening around this. So this centurion observed more than Mark reveals to us, which I think makes Mark's point a little more narrow. I think Mark is showing us the power that rests in the death of Jesus Christ. As one writer said, the power of the gospel is so great that even those who persecute Christians will be one to faith. Mark's trying to show us that the cross is the birthplace of faith. The cross is the supreme revelation of Jesus as God's son, hence the title. The response of the centurion, I think, is the response that Mark is intending from everybody who reads this text. He's been building the case. Here's who this king is. Here's what this king is going to do. Here's what it means to follow him. This is the confession that Mark wants from everybody who comes across his gospel. Truly, this is the son of God. You know, we've walked this entire journey. Through Mark, and it seems that person after person has missed who Christ is. Now it's clear who he is and what he came to do, and the faith response of the centurion demonstrates that no one, absolutely no one, is beyond the salvation of our God. He's the very first one. Right here upon the death of Christ, we get the confession out of him. Mark wants to make it clear. No one, no one can escape the power of the cross. No one has outsinned the grace of God. If the very one, we get it in Paul too. You think about Paul's salvation. But if the very one carrying out the crucifixion of the Savior can be saved, then who can't? Mark's aim, God's aim has been, been to get us to see this. He's been leading us to this faith confession, which means we need to ask, who is Jesus to us? Like, who do we see him as? How do we understand the cross? So just back up and consider those three areas that I put out at the beginning, those three areas that this text helps us to learn who we are, who Christ is and what he has done or what he's accomplished. Just think about that. Here's the clear point of the text. We are sinners through and through. 
rebels against God. We're not good people. Okay. We're not good people deserving salvation and we're, we're not neutral people that just need to be bumped one way or the other. Enemies deserving death. Not my opinion. That's the testimony of scripture. We have told God in so many unique ways that we're in charge and he's not. We are captains of our ship and God can get on board if he'll take us to the destination that we want. But the clear point is also that Jesus is the crucified son of God, the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who came to set all things right. Savior. And he's come to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, to free us. He came to die so that we might live our trajectory and only option is hell apart from Jesus. Our trajectory and only option is hell, eternal suffering and torment apart from Jesus. But with Jesus, our path is heaven and joy and freedom and pleasure that we can't imagine. Let's make it clear here at the end. Do you know who you are? Do you see who Jesus is? And have you received what he's done for you? Nothing more important in life than to consider three questions of that nature. A lot to consider from this text. A lot I didn't even cover, really. But looking at who you are, who Jesus is, and what he's done. And seeing where you stand on those things, on those questions. There's nothing more important than that. So who are you? Who's Jesus? And have you received what he's done? If you want to talk about that any further, that would be a joy to discuss with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We have pictures in our mind. We've seen movies. We've looked at art. But you chose to speak and have it written down and transmitted to us that we would be able to know who Jesus is, know who we are, and know what Jesus has done. So we, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel of Mark in particular. And we thank you for the cross. Help us now. In light of the barriers that we know stand between us and right comprehension of who we are, who Christ is, And what he's accomplished in light of those barriers, open our eyes, hearts, minds, all of our faculties to comprehend, grasp, and receive this truth. Maybe for the first time or for the hundredth, to be freshly impacted by what, by who we are apart from Christ and what it took to save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with